From Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. This week, we are again joined by the Reverend McGray DeVega, Senior Pastor of Hyde Park United Methodist, and the Reverend Dr. Melody Knowles, the Vice President of Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of Old Testament at Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria, Virginia. This is the second part of a two-part series on Chronicles. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to listen. This week, we dive deeper into Chronicles, exploring the genealogies, Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles 6, and we contrast the depiction of God in Chronicles with the rest of the Bible. Finally, we asked Melody to give us the outline of a good Easter sermon based off the text of Chronicles, and it is an appropriate word for our time. Now, on to the episode. Well, one of the questions that we are often get when we read the Bible is, what do we do with long lists of ancestry, genealogies, long lists of names, oh. and true, true to even the name chronicler, um, <laughs> there is a long genealogy here in in Chronicles. So, what what do you suppose we do with that? Yeah, you know, nine long chapters. It's really not much of an intro, is it? No, no, no. A long, long time ago in Israel, far, far far away. away. All these people. Um, No, again, I'm sympathetic to those who would find that kind of hard going. And um, again, I think just taking a step, it might be helpful to keep it slightly more interesting is just to take a step back and try to look at what the project is that the chronicler is doing. Um, I mean, again, retelling, in some ways, the scope is larger than the Deuteronomistic history in that the Chronicle starts with Adam. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're going to tell the whole story right, and, and, right. and not miss anything. So that sort of comprehensiveness. And then I think what's so stirring is, okay, so this is a post-exilic period. And what and, and what do we need? We need a history. And what is that? Who is that history made up of actual people and yeah. generations? And like those details matter. And I'm not just making up some half-remembered stories, but I've got my evidence and my footnotes, and I'm going to remember generation by generation of the people mm-hmm. who who are part of us. Yeah. So that's sort of a compare-contrast compare with the historical work of the Deuteronomist. But then you think about comparing, contrasting what's going on with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Oh, yeah. So these are kind of more contemporaneous texts, probably. And, um, you know, the notorious parts of... Ezra and Nehemiah are, is the rejection of the foreign wives. Right, right. right. What, what's, you know, what's at stake for those authors is that we need to protect the Holy Seed. And if we get foreign women into the mix, um, that's a huge problem and is only solved by sending them away along with their children. And you, you go through then the, the chapters of First Chronicles 1 through 9 and you realize what's going on there is actually the chronicler keeps importing all these foreign women into the into the storyline and like without comment like not aspersion like oh no they got married and then he fell into sin because of all the foreign idols or something like that no it's just very she was part of the family from a different tribe and look at us we flourished and prospered it's it's almost like through a very kind of sly method because you don't really see it unless you're really looking hard but you see that the it's exactly opposite to Ezra and Nehemiah in that foreign women, foreign men and women actually grow us into something stronger. Hmm. And if you are just going to you know, take this purest attitude and cast uh. them all out, we wouldn't be who we are today. Yeah. 
So like our history is built on the fact that we were inclusive of people, that we let other people be a part of our story. Yeah, which is stirring. <laughs> I mean, for such a boring, boring couple texts, it is a kind of stirring project. Right. It kind of sets the stage, again, as you pointed out, in in contrast to Ezra Nehemiah, that mm-hmm. that it is a completely different project and, and that they're contemporaneous. It's almost like there's these two streams of thought that are fighting for what the future of this post-exilic Israelite community is going to be. Exactly. It really does communicate the sense that the story that you're about to hear is so much bigger than just a few people that you're going to hear about. It's been part of a long stream of folks who've contributed to the story that you are now a part of. Exactly. The the, the simple way my mind tends to work you know, in terms of connecting it to movies is I, I remember growing up watching really early movies where it used to be that movies began with – a several minutes of opening credits where yeah. you would not only see the names of the actors but mm. but the 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 grip and the best boy and the assistant directors <laughs> and cinematographers and it wouldn't be until like 5 minutes into the film that you would actually see the story start um and I can see why they stopped doing that because people just want to get to the good stuff but in a way when you watch a movie like that and you see the hundreds of people who are involved in making this experience mm. happen it gives you a pretty good appreciation for the fact that this story didn't just come from nowhere, mm. that you are, you're watching an effort that has been a long time in the making. And, yeah, it lends a certain credibility to it. And right? gravitas. Are, yeah, absolutely. Gravitas. Yeah. yeah. And I, I sometimes based it, it used to look like a book, some, some of the openings. So it was like, right. And somehow, and it was that mixture of forms. I'm a, this is a, a film, a video, a, a visual production, but I'm going to, relate it back to a storytelling in a book and they'd have to have that out there. Although that's sort of, sort of weird because there's no relation of most movies to books, right. but somehow they, they that's, wanted to draw that connection. That's true. That's true. So similarly, sort of how this history that is going to be narrative kind of starts with a genealogy. Mm-hmm. Right. That's great. Yeah. Right, right. This isn't a genealogical document. It's a narrative document right. that he happened to put a genealogy at the front of. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. But you're going to have to wait till the, um, you know, you can, there's action within all of the names, but you're going to have to wait as the reader, as the viewer to see an action that you're used to seeing. Yeah. I mean, book publishers are thankful for the prayer of Jabez because <laughs> <laughs> if it weren't for that, I mean, I don't even know if Chronicles would have made it in the canon. <laughs> right. Aren't we all thankful for the prayer of Jabez? Yeah, that's right. yeah we should be. <laughs> so Melody, we're, when, when we start uh, Second Chronicles, we are kind of in Solomon's reign. He was just anointed as king and now he's ruling. And we know that one of the things that Solomon did is he built the temple and, you know, he started temple worship. And we have this big scene in uh, Chronicles 5 through 7 where we kind of get the temple dedicated. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about what's going on in that in that text and maybe elsewhere in Chronicles too? I just sense that there are other um, sources that the chroniclers using here uh, that may be instructive for helping us understand the text. Yeah, I mean the book of First Chronicles, you know, starts with Adam, and and it, but its real its real narrative push is is the temple, the temple, the temple. So you get David not building the temple, but doing a lot of work setting it up. So yeah. finally, you get into Second Chronicles, and it's Solomon who um, who finally now is able to do this thing that you've been preparing for for chapters and chapters and chapters. So he sets about, and he um, he goes about to to do exactly what we've been told he was going to do. And then once we hit chapters um, five through seven, he, he dedicates it with this long, long prayer. 
Um, yeah, a lot of the prayers actually borrowed from the source in Kings. Um, and so you could, so again, it, it, as it, there'd be a way of reading in which to say, well, what is it functioning differently than it did in Kings? Um, or is it sort of progressing the same sort of, um, same ideology, the same point. Is but, it functioning some, differently? Well, the reader will have to tell. Oh. <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, one of the major differences is um, that the chronicler will closes the prayer with a quotation from Psalm one thirty two. Um, and so you know, sometimes we think about the New Testament quoting parts of the Old Testament, and you know what's going on there. But here we actually have the Old Testament quoting parts of the Old Testament itself too. I mean, it's sort of a double quote, right? Because the chronicler is quoting Kings and then also quoting Psalm 132. And there's another section in the book of Chronicles where there's another Psalm that's being quoted. So there's kind of like a reuse thing happening here. So Solomon gets up and delivers this long, long prayer. You know, you could you could have a church evening in which someone is <laughs> has to stand up and give the same prayer. Where, where do people, right. you know, nod off? But I mean, there's a couple of interesting things about this prayer. One of them is that, it's if you read it, if you really just put yourself in the post-exilic period and you reread the prayer, you'll notice that it sort of foreshadows exactly the position that the people are in. Mm-hmm. Right? It, you know, they're in the middle of the temple and worship like you know, nothing could be like more than the height of the existence of of the nation at that point. And yet they sort of they look forward to a time when everything's not perfect, right? What if someone sins? How what should they how should they handle it? What if they sin and they're then they're not near the temple? Well how should they handle it? So it's almost as if it becomes a bit of a roadmap for the future time. Both, you know, and so this is where the in Kings it's the future time for what happens when we're in the exile. And for the chronicler, it's what happens when we're some of us are still in the diaspora, some of us are back in the land. How do we relate to the temple and to God? Mm-hmm. So that kind of foreshadowing. Um, but then in the use of Psalm 132, this is, a, again, a kind of another interesting place to do some comparison, compare and contrast. The Psalm 132, it's this, it's this kind of, it's, I think it's a really interesting psalm. We, because of the superscriptions, we oftentimes will put the psalms into David's voice. But actually, David doesn't occur in the text of the Psalms very often, if at all. There's only, you know, three major times when David is is portrayed within the Psalms. You mean like invoked uh, as a character within the action yeah. of the Psalm? Okay. Yeah, yeah, and um, and so and so, so he's kind of he's he's rare within the Psalm, the text of the Psalms itself. And here we've got David actually speaking. So you, again, this is even more rare. You've got not only David showing up, but David talking. Mm, yeah. So he, he begins by um, making a vow to God to, to build the temple. And then the people, well, they're not named, but, you know, a congregation start, prays to God for this temple. And it's actually, and then in the second part, God God starts talking and, um, and says, I, I love all your ideas. <laughs> uh, we're going to have David, you're going to have a, a dynasty and we're going to have, I'm going to choose Jerusalem and this will be my place. So the, the, what the chronicler is doing is quoting the words of the congregation's prayer in the first half of the Psalm. Mm. So in some ways, the King Solomon is taking on the persona of the, the congregation that responded to David's own oath. Yeah. 
Now, what's interesting about that, though, for me, is that um, in Psalm 132, uh, it God God functions there as as sort of a responsive and sympathetic mm-hmm. God. You know, it's not God chose David and the dynasty first, and everyone said that's a great idea, God. Let's get on board. It's as if David and the people said, God, here's an idea that we think is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. And God says, that sounds great. So, I mean, there's other passages where God chooses Jerusalem and David before the foundations of the world, but that's not, no. that's not the presentation in Psalm 132. Right. Yeah. It's a different depiction, almost as if like the people say, Hey, here's, here's what we've done. Here's how we've behaved. And now God, please. Yeah, or this is what we think would be a great idea. Yeah, yeah. And God says, "Yeah, I love it." And and there's like there's paralleling. You know, God t- picks up the same vocabulary from the people's prayers. Oh wow, wow, wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even in their action, right? David vows to God, and then God vows to David. So the the mirroring is really interesting, and it's interesting that God becomes the responsive character rather than the first mover. Right. Cause in most covenants, it's God saying, Hey, yeah, or, yeah right. God acting. And then, yeah. yeah. And that's a profoundly interesting point when it comes to the simple idea of what worship can mean and what prayer can mean. Um, well, yeah, to what, it's a powerful vision of prayer. Absolutely. Uh, because in this, in this vision, prayer actually makes a difference. It actually does affect <laughs> God. It actually does prompt a response of God and and I so know. does worship. Um, yeah. To whatever degree people come in to worship cons- with a consumerist mindset that says, "I hope worship does it for me or gives me what I need," this is a very different idea that mm-hmm. that I come into worship with this expectation, with this anticipation that not only can I experience God, but I can be in conversation with God <laughs> and have God be yeah. um, a responder to what I do in this place. Somehow my prayers matter. They really do matter in this yeah. vision. Absolutely. In that vision, right? Of, of um, the, well, at least my interpretation of Psalm 132, because that's actually not what the chronicler is doing mm-hmm. <laughs> in Solomon's dedicatory prayer. I mean, notice, so Solomon picks up those words of the congregation. And how does God respond um, at the end of chapter, um, at the end of chapter six? So Solomon fire. gives a version. Yes. <laughs> no words, just fire. just fire. No words. And so like, it's significant for me reading Psalm 132 that God picks up the same language yeah. and, you know, says uh, that's a great idea. And, you know, there is a, there is um, an expansiveness. God says, that's a great idea. And you know what? I'll even do it better than what you asked for. Um, but there's a certain paralleling. In the book of Chronicles, it's like, no, that's just too weird for the chronicler. Like, the chronicler has a God who is, who responds to prayer, but isn't somehow, it feels a little too like God's being dictated by the human community. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so there's no, God doesn't say, that's a great idea, I love it, I'm going to give even more. God responds non-verbally with a firebolt. And, um, and everyone knows that God accepted the temple, but God hasn't kind of come too close to the people's prayers in a way that I think happens in 132. So this feels different than the way God behaves in the Pentateuch um, mm. and the way God behaves in the Deuteronomistic history. And the reason I'm kind of keep hitting this home is because um, 
I feel like as we're reading through all this, a lot of times people get hung up in the Pentateuch on, oh, God's mean. They get hung up in the Deuteronomistic history, especially Joshua and Judges with, oh, God's violent. But then you come across Chronicles and now you're kind of getting a God that's way more nuanced. Yeah. It's just like, it, I think it would, I think if we can sit in that for a second and just kind of continue talking about how God is nuanced in Chronicles compared to the other two mm-hmm. present major presentations that we've had so far in the scriptures, it might help people understand who God is becoming or who the people are understanding God to be That's right. throughout that's... the Old Testament. Because we've got so much that comes after this in our Christian canon, mm-hmm. Psalms, wisdom, prophets, you know, so we're going to lose this in a second. But like, I don't want to lose this moment of we've now had three very distinct representations of how the people understood God. Well, I, I mean, I think just to maybe clarify, I think that I think that the chroniclers is in some ways correcting the presentation of Psalm 132 mm. <laughs> in that I, Psalm Bummer. 132, there's, <laughs> well, it depends, <laughs> right? <laughs> in that, um, in some ways, a little closer to what we've seen in Deuteronomy and Samuel and Kings, that uh, is, it's a God okay. who is um, in charge and, um, um, you know, okay. wanting to pursue justice um, also forgiveness, but there's it's in some ways the chronicler kind of reigns in Psalm 132. Okay, just reading. like we're getting reined in, right just now. like we're getting like reined in. Right now. Is like, oh, no, no. But but I think I think the essential part of your point is simply that. Um, okay, so if I was editing the Bible, I might have edited the Book of Chronicles out. You, you know, don't tell anyone. But no, because no, you have no. like, what, what's it doing in there? Like, it is repetitive, and what do we learn new from it? But again, the going back to what is the project of the chronicler and maybe of the whole canon, it it allows different presentations of God and the people to coexist. Uh, cool. So it's not just that it's a retelling for a different period, but it's it's a modeling that we're not going to get this story right totally in one telling. You know, so it kind of gives us a little bit of room to say, to to it, so that it's a real question that we can ask: Who is God for us today? Mm. We're shaped by the tradition, but the tradition also shows us that there's a certain flexibility, um, a certain need for for the story of God and creation to be spoken of anew, right? There's a new song to be sung in every generation. And so even though, you know, what does the chronicler give us that's new? Not maybe, you might say not that much, but the fact that they're bound together in the same book, yeah, these very different histories, I think is uh, provoking to me. Let's kind of wrap up this episode by talking a little bit more about some of the other theological topics in the book of Chronicles. Uh, we've touched on prayer. We've touched on the idea of all of Israel, the community being together, a more inclusive community than Ezra and Nehemiah would have it. And then in the first episode, you mentioned Manasseh and this idea of sin and repentance. Can we talk a little bit more about that theological topic of sin and repentance throughout the book of Chronicles? Yeah, and in, in some ways, this might be related to to the presentation of God in, the, in Solomon's prayer, in that we do, um, God, God listens to prayer. And God responds. So um, people are going to sin, <laughs> and God is going to respond to that. And and there, so there will be punishment meted out. There's a, a justice that the chronicler really wants to emphasize throughout the text. But God is also able to forgive in the text as well, and sometimes forgive in surprising ways. You know, again, looking back at that story of Manasseh, 
you know, if you if you read too quickly the book of Chronicles, all you all you see is God being, you know, really in touch with the city of Jerusalem and wanting to make sure that everyone gets their just desert. The story of Manasseh reminds us that God can hear the prayers in Babylon. So God's not confined by this geography mm-hmm. and that God is ready to forgive the most notorious sinner in the earlier historical text. God is in the temple, but can act beyond that, right? God lives in the temple, but there's this expansive understanding of how God can move. Yeah, I, I might say that God God has a special relationship to Jerusalem. The God mm-hmm. and the nation have a special relationship to mm-hmm. Jerusalem. So there's a primacy there. But it doesn't mean that God's power isn't isn't alive in the whole of the universe. So it's, it's not a way to sort of localize God, but it is a way to say Jerusalem matters a lot. And Chronicle picks up on the Chronicles picks up on the idea that hey we're in Babylon, but guess what? God isn't gone. God can still mm-hmm. be here in a mm-hmm. distant place. That's right. In the not just a distant place, but in the in the very place that was a, a place of punishment, right? Or in the heart of the mm. empire, like exactly where things went wrong. Our prison. God is there. We noticed that you're an ordained Episcopalian priest, and um, by the timing of this episode and where we're reading these books. Uh, it'll be probably on the brink of Easter. And so we're kind of wondering uh, if you were to preach a sermon on anything oh, in, in Chronicles on Easter morning um, that celebrates new life, hope, uh, the possibility of of resurrection and promise, what what text do you think you would choose and what would be the the main point of that Easter sermon? So as an Episcopal priest, I have to follow the lectionary text. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) So this is a fun project, right? Does the lectionary do anything out of Chronicles? No. Okay. And I could, I could talk a lot about that, but right, uh, right. I mean, if I had, if I could choose which text and it cost, well, except that it had to come from the Chronicles, I think what I might do is exactly go from the beginning to the very end. You know, that, that naming of the ancestors, um, that, has a certain roteness too, right? Easter comes every year, same uh, old, same old. We all know the story. Yet, if you dig down deep, there's places where if you go too quickly, you don't see those stories of, of new things that are being done and, and new things that are counterintuitive and they're, and, and they're not at all business as usual, right? So it's a counter story to what the presentation is of in Ezra and Nehemiah. So there's, you know, that kind of surprising newness that's, that's embedded in what looks like same old, same old for that. And then I think I would end with the, with the, how the book of Chronicles ends, you know, what is the, what is the chief nature of, of who humanity is called to be? It's kind of, it's found in Cyrus's call, you know, again, what a surprise. It's found in the words of the, the pagan emperor, mm-hmm. but yet it, it does sort of, especially if you take it as kind of the end book in the Jewish canon, Whoever is among you out of all God's people, let them go up. Mm, wow. wow. <laughs> that, you know, we are called to be pilgrims, never content, never settled, never the people who are at home in this world, but always on the move and always trusting in God to lead us on the way. We're so glad you joined us this week, and we're glad you're on this journey with us towards reading the Bible without fear or frustration. We'd love to hear from you. Join our Facebook group, The Bible Project 2020, or go to BibleProject2020.com to learn more about Hyde Park United Methodist and our project. 
You can also join us for live online worship Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. at hydeparkumc.org slash live. McGray DeVega produced this episode. I'm Matt Hotho. See you next week.